0: All right, we are in Romans 8, Romans 8, we have a big chunk today, 19 through 27, all right, so we're taking quite a large section, uh, but I do think it flows very nicely, so we're keeping it together all in one package, all right, so Romans 8, verses 19 through 27, please follow along with me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We'll stop there tonight. Let me pray for us as we enter his time and his word. Lord God, we ask for your grace tonight as we approach your word I pray that it would be a worshipful time a time in which you are exalted and honored and glorified and praised I pray you would help me in my weakness Lord strengthen me in this hour that I would not get in the way of your truth I pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts that you convict us that you would show us your truth you'd show us our need for you that we would worship you we pray in christ's name amen i don't like scary movies how many people like scary movies you're sick <laughs> i don't know why anyone would do that to themselves it makes no sense i don't like scary movies i don't like scary things i don't like being scared i don't like scary anything yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And for some reason, when I was in fifth grade, my dad thought it would be a good idea to take me to a haunted house. I don't know why. Why he thought that would be such a great idea. I don't know if you've ever been to or seen these haunted houses. It's not like the haunted house at Disneyland, where they're all singing these fun songs, and it's goofy. This is like scary stuff, like really scary. At least for me, it was scary. I, someone chased me with a chainsaw. <laughs> People were running up, like, their brains were exposed, people were, like, they're popping out to scare you, creepy clouds. I'm not not trying to give you nightmares, regardless to say. It was very scary, and especially as a fifth grader. I'd be scared now, today. But as a fifth grader, come on, Dad, what are you doing? I was crying the entire time. And you have to go through the entire haunted house. It, it, It took us three hours to get from start to finish. And I was crying for the entire three hours, and literally the whole three hours. I'm holding my dad's hand, crying, I don't want to be here. And I'm crying the entire time. I was begging that we would get out of there. I was groaning to him, let me get out of here. Now, in this passage, we see groaning. We don't use that word a lot. But we see groaning of three subjects. Creation, believers, and the Holy Spirit. And what is a groan? As I was groaning in that haunted house, what is a groan? A groan is an expression of anguish, it is, it is a cry for deliverance, it is a longing to be rescued from torment. And I was tormented. And I was groaning that I would be rescued from that. I was. Needless to say, like a week later, someone got shot and killed there. A cop did. They thought, like this guy came in with a gun and started shooting the cops and he died and stuff. All the cops died and they thought it was part of the act. So yeah, I could have died. That's a fifth grader. Yeah, it's crazy. It was Kansas City, Missouri. Weird things happen. (laughs) Anyways, that's what a groaning is. Cry for deliverance. Longing to be rescued. And tonight we see, out of those three subjects, we see how creation groans, how believers groan, And how the Holy Spirit groans. And as we see these groanings, as we see these cries for deliverance, ultimately it will point us to the hope that we have in God. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. These three groanings and then how that directs us in our hope to God. Alright? So let's jump right in because we have a lot to cover here uh, in just four hours. So... Creation groans, verses 19. I didn't plug it in. Nolan, could you just hit the down button every time I cue you? Thank you. Creation groans. The first aspect we see in creation groans is that creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's one of those cue points. Creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Let's go ahead and just press the down button. Thank you, Noah. Anytime I say next, that just means just press down. Thank you. Okay, got it? There you go. Creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, when we speak of creation, we have to understand what he's talking about when he says creation. When we speak of creation, he's talking about the created world around us. When we say, oh, let's go outside and enjoy creation. We're talking about what? The animals, the plants, the, the mountains, the rivers, the seas, whatever it is the outside, the, the, the creation. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that this creation groans, as it says in verse 22, and waits with eager longing, verse 19. And the word for eager longing in verse 19 literally means is on tiptoe to see. Or, or, or watching with it with an outstretched head. It, it's, it's like if you're looking over the fence, right? Like, that, like you're on your tiptoes and your head's stretched out. Like you're, you're looking ahead. It's that idea of looking ahead with, with this great anticipation. Creation is waiting. Creation is looking ahead eagerly anticipating what is to come. What is the creation waiting for? Verse 19 says, for the creation waits with eager longing, outstretched head, on tiptoes. What? For the revealing of the sons of God. That's what creation is waiting for. For the sons of God to be revealed. The children of God will one day be revealed. We cannot judge the hearts of man. On, on this side of eternity, we cannot fully, 100% know if someone is truly in the faith or not. There are many who live a good life. who They don't cuss. They don't steal. They definitely don't murder. They give. They're kind. They help people. They say nice things. They do nice things. But they're not truly in the faith. There are many who walk in and out of churches diligently, faithfully attend, and with all sincerity, that they believe they are in right standing with God, but they very well may be far from them. As Jesus said to some, you will say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name, I did that in your name, I did this in your name, but I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. These people, sadly, will live their whole lives believing that they are right with God, but in reality they're not. Whether it be those who are found in Catholic churches, or Mormon temples, or Grace Bible Church, or TYG. That they will be those who are deceived. That they're deceived by false teaching, that they're deceived by their own works, whether they're deceived by, by various things. Thinking. Yeah, I have right standing with God. But in reality, they don't. And at the appointed time, God will reveal those who are truly His. The sons of God will be revealed. Those who are hiding will hide no longer. Those who are faking will not fake any longer. Those who are deceived will not be deceived any longer that God will separate the sheep from the goats and all will become known and all will become clear. Those who are part of his fold will remain in his fold and those who are not will be cast out. And I fear for some of you in this room, I fear for some of you here tonight that some of you, you say the right things, some of you, you do the right things, but you are far from Him. One day, you will be revealed. You may fool me. You may fool your parents. You may fool your friends. But you will not fool God. One day, the sons of God will be revealed. What does the revealing of the sons of God mean to you? Like, like what, what does that create in you? What does the separation of of the sheep and the goats create in you? For some, it may create fear. It may create worry. There may be fear because because you know you are not a son of God. And and, and you fear the day of when that will be revealed. Or maybe you fear that day because because you aren't sure where you're going to land. You're, You're not sure if you truly belong to him or not. Either way, I tell you this. Trust in the Lord. Do not trust in yourself. Do not trust in your works. But repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. He is your hope. There is no hope. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. None. Now for others, the revealing of the sons of God, it may create joy. It may create great anticipation if you're a Christian, it should, because you long for that day. You long for the day when your faith will be made sight. You long for the day when you will see Jesus face to face. And that's a good longing. Long for that, Christian. Not because of confidence in yourself, but because of the confidence of the promises of God and the finished work of Christ on your behalf. So you do long for the day in which the sons of God will be revealed. Now, why does the creation wait eagerly for this? Why does creation care about that? Why are they longing for this? Because at the proper time, when God reveals the sons of God, creation will also receive its bondage. See, before we talk about its freedom, creation's freedom, it's important to know that the creation is in bondage. So our next point is that creation was unwillingly subjected to futility. That's what it says in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation was unwillingly subjected to futility. Before the fall, creation was perfect. I believe there were no weeds, and there were no poisonous plants, There were no thorns or anything else that could cause harm or suffering. And at that time, creation was not tainted with sin, but was perfect in every way. It is when man fell, and because of sin, that the world has become subject to futility. But notice, it's not sin that had the power to subject creation, nor did creation choose to subject itself. But it is God, the creator, who subjected creation to this. It indeed was the result of the sin of Adam. But it is God who had the power and the authority to do so. God told Adam in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. Creation didn't sin. Adam did. But it was a result of Adam's sin. That God has subjected it to futility. And in that we see three aspects of how creation was affected by the fall. First we see that it was futile, as we said. Or in some translations they say that it's, it was frustrated. This is, this is referring to, to wanting to attain a certain goal but not being able to do so. That it's futile. Or, or it's, it's, it's frustrating. That creation wants to be what it once was created to be. It desires to be how God intended it to be. But it's not. And it cannot. It's futile. It's frustrated, wanting to be what it once was. And not only is it futile, but it's in bondage. Creation cannot redeem itself. It cannot fix itself. It cannot make itself right. See, the the, the frustration kind of refers to the feeling of it. that, That creation feels frustrated with this. But bondage refers to the actual state in which it's in. That creation is in bondage. It cannot, and it will not, fix itself. It cannot be free. And we also see that creation is corrupted. And it's decaying, says. See, the world is not getting better. And I don't think it's really hard to realize that. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. And it's slowly decaying. It's slowly becoming further and further from God's perfect intended design. This is really the opposite of how the world views creation, is it not? They believe that creation itself is getting better and better with our effort. And this is really the thrust and the core belief of evolution. that, That we are evolving into something better and stronger. That's not what the Bible teaches. Scripture says that the world is decaying. It's not getting better. So how should Christians view creation? We're not to worship creation. We're not to make it our life goal to to redeem creation. We're not to believe or expect that creation to evolve into something better only if, if we put enough effort into it. That being said... We have to be good stewards of it. We're to take care of it. We're to be thankful for it. But we must understand that this is God's world. And it belongs to Him. We worship the Creator, not the creation. We enjoy His creation. We take care of it. But we don't idolize it. While this creation has been corrupted and it's in bondage, that's not the end of the story. There will be a time in which it will be set free. So our next point, creation will be set free from this bondage. Creation will be set free from this bondage. Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day God will create the new heavens and the new earth. What exactly in detail will that look like and when exactly will it happen and this and that, we're not exactly sure. But what we know is that one day creation will be restored and believers will enjoy it. And it will be without the effects of sin and it will be perfect. Many of us have experienced, I hope, the beauties and the wonders of creation Maybe you think about the sandy beaches of Hawaii, if you've been there. Or you think about the rocks and the cliffs of Yosemite. You think about the sunsets over the Pacific Ocean. You think of the redwoods of California. Or think of any of the other beauties of this world in which you've seen. Think of the most beautiful place that you've ever been to. And you're just like, wow. That's amazing. Wow. Our God is incredible. And all of that in which you have seen It's through the corruption and decay of the world. All of that is tainted with sin. One day, creation will be even better. The creation, the the, the, the Christian will experience the creation perfectly as it was intended to be experienced. And this will not come from from a political agenda or or a lifelong effort to, to make the world a better place. But this will come from the redemption of God. This is why creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. As one commentator put it, he said, quote, Just as man's sin brought corruption to the universe, so man's restoration of righteousness will be accompanied by the restoration of the earth and its universe to their divinely intended perfection and glory. End quote. See, Paul uses... The, the pains of childbirth as an illustration. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just like when a mother is giving birth, there's pain. I think. I didn't do it. <laughs> but I hear it's painful. It looks painful. And, that, and, and, and there, there's the pain in the childbirth. At some point, the pain ends. And the result is a beautiful creation. Amen. In the same way, creation groans. It's in pain. But one day the pain will end and will result in a beautiful creation. That's what he's saying here. Not only does creation groan in the pains of childbirth, but Paul says believers do as well. In verse 23. Three. And not only creation, but we ourselves. Talking about believers. So that's our next section. Believers grow. Verses 23 through 25. And our first point here is that believers eagerly wait for the full redemption of their bodies. Believers eagerly wait for the full redemption of their bodies. Look at what it says in verse 23. And not only the creation, as we just talked about, but we ourselves, as in believers, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? He's been talking about the believer being indwelt by the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that believers have the first fruits of the Spirit. A common theme that Paul's been building in this chapter, if you remember, is that the Holy Spirit is indwelling the believer. And he continues that here. It's a major thing that we can't just skip by. Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you. And as a result of that, your life is different. It must be. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You cannot say you're a Christian and then your life be the same. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Spirit residing within you and then live the same as you once were. It makes no sense. It's impossible. There is power in the Holy Spirit, and there is change caused by Him. The Holy Spirit residing within the Christian causes fruit in the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit empowers us, the Christian, to turn from sin and to turn to worship. This is the ongoing fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's both a turning from sin and it's a turning to worship. Both must be present. And both must be evident in the life of a Christian. If you are a Christian, and you have the Holy Spirit inside you, there must be a hatred of your sin. And there must be a longing for holiness. As the Christian grows, their hatred for sin grows. They hate the very presence of sin in their life. They want nothing more to do with it. It disgusts them. They hate it. There's that struggle. And the struggle is because they don't want it in their life any longer. And it weighs heavy on their heart. As David says in Psalm 38, my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. A heavy burden, he says. Christian, can you relate? Are your sins a heavy burden that weigh too much for you? Do you hate the sin that still resides within you? unbelievers don't don't grieve over their sin they may grieve over the consequences of their sin oh i hate that i'm grounded now but they, they don't grieve over the sin itself there's there's not a true remorse or a repentance of what they've done against god for the christian they hate that they've sinned against god you see now, Christian, while, while there must be biblical and, and genuine conviction of sin, we must always remember grace and not become overwhelmed by grief. Yes, hate your sin. Yes, be burdened by your sin, but always go to the foot of the cross and remember the complete forgiveness you have in Christ. Do not become so overwhelmed by your sin. That you take away from the forgiveness and the grace of God. Don't forget that. But know with confidence, Christian, that even the deepest of your sins, even the sin in which you commit over and over and over and over again, has been paid for by the blood of Christ and has been forgiven by the Father. Do not forget that. You are not to be burdened by, by your sin for, for, for fear of, of what it may do to your standing with God. That, well, I, I hate my sin because I, I'm worried of what it's going to do in my relationship with God. You cannot sin yourself out of the grace of God. It's impossible to outsend God's grace because God's grace is perfect and infinite. because his promises are true yesterday and today and forever. You ought to be burdened, Christian, by your sin because you love God so much and you don't want to do anything against him or anything that grieves him. You hate more than anything to sin against your greatest love. You desire to live for him and you know that to sin is not to live for him. And so you say, Man, all I want to do is live for you, God. But why do I keep sinning? I don't want to do this. I know this is against you. I don't want that. I want to live for you because I love you. So this sin grieves my heart. And it weighs heavy. That's what he's getting at. You see, not only does the Christian and dwell by the Holy Spirit hate their sin, but they turn to worship. This is the second half of repentance. And and it is truly the path of the genuine Christian. It doesn't stop at just hating your sin, but it continues to the worship of God. The desire in the Christian has changed to to no longer pursue sinful things, but now is to pursue the glory of God. This is the fruit of the believer caused by the Holy Spirit. The turning from sin and the turning to God. What is this longing for? That the Christian has. Back to the text. He's saying that the Christian longs for this. What is he longing for? It is a longing. It's a looking forward. Remember like with an outstretched head. Tippy toes. Looking forward to what? To the time in which they will sin no more. In which they will worship God perfectly for all of eternity. That's what the Christian longs for. There's a longing for what is to come. is the consummation of our salvation. We live Today, what theologians call the already, not yet. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe not. The already, not yet. Let me explain. If someone were to ask you, if you're a Christian, okay, let's, let's say that you are a Christian, and someone were to ask you if you are saved, how would you answer? Don't answer out loud. But if you're a Christian and they say, are you saved? You could answer, be appropriate to say, yes, I have been saved. Christ died and he rose again and he's justified me and he saved me in my sins and he's granted me faith and repentance and I have been saved. It's over and done with. I have been saved. It also would be appropriate for you to say, I am being saved. I am not yet perfect. I still sin, I still struggle, but God is working in me and he's perfecting me and he is strengthening me to fight my sin. I am being made more like him. I am being saved. It also would be appropriate to say, I am going to be saved. I'm not yet home. I'm not yet perfected. I'm a pilgrim here on earth. But one day I will be made like him and I will be in his courts. One day I will be saved from the sinful body and the sinful world. I am going to be saved. See, we live in the already, not yet. We've already been saved, but not yet. Paul says we, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. We wait eagerly for that. What Didn't he just say in verse 15 that we've already been adopted as sons of God? Already. But not yet. Yes, we've been adopted and we've been brought into the family of God. But at the same time, we wait eagerly for it as we are not yet able to enjoy all of the privileges of this adoption. Right? Are you sitting at the table, at the banquet table with God? No. But you will. And you wait eagerly for it. But aren't you adopted as the son of God? Yes. Fooling. It's done. It's complete. See, but by no means is Paul teaching that we have a partial or we have a temporary or we have an incomplete salvation. He is not saying that at all. The believer is fully saved. Christ's work is sufficient. At the time of conversion, the believer's soul has been redeemed, has been purified, has been made new and eternally secured in the hands of God. Okay, So that is done. Nothing can change that. Nothing can add to that. And nothing can take that away from you. The work has been finished by Christ. But we still live in our sinful bodies. In which we wait for the full redemption of our bodies. That's what he's saying. The believer is already a new creation. And indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the Christian still resides within their sinful bodies. This is why the Christian still sins. And one day the Christian will have resurrected bodies in which they will sin no more. And so we wait. Christian, we wait for the redemption of our bodies for when we will be made like Christ. And what that looks like in regard to our form or our appearance and our capabilities, we're not entirely sure. But we know that we will be sinless. We know that we will be righteous. We know that we will be immortal. And we will be with God. While we possess all that we need in Christ today. We still wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. The next we see that believers have an assured hope in the promises of God. Verses 24 and 25. Believers have an assured hope in the promises of God of God now this hope it's a, it's a very important word and most of you should know by now that this hope in what we're talking about it's not a eh, maybe, maybe not it's not a wishful thinking it's not a playing of the probabilities and hoping to get this but Christian hope is an assurance of the promises of God That the hope of our salvation is not that we might or we might not lose it. But it is a guarantee from the Lord that we cannot and we will not lose it. We're going to see that more as we get into the 30s of chapter 8. Look at what Paul says in verse 24 and 25. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. While our salvation is complete, as we said, we do still hope for what is to come. We hope for what we have not yet seen. The Christian hopes for the final consummation of their salvation and the promises of God in which they have yet to experience. But this hope is a sure hope. Because his hope is based on the promises of God who cannot lie. There's no need to doubt or to question or to wonder on the promises of God. Because what God has promised is true and will forever be true. Christian, you can be assured and fully confident in the things of God. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That you are eternally secured in his hands. That he has prepared a place for you in his kingdom. That his love for you will never change. That you will be with him for all of eternity. That you will be made like him. That you will be without sin. That nothing can separate you from his love. And so on and so forth. These are promises of God. And his promises are trustworthy. And his promises are always, yes, and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Have hope. And this promises, Christian. And this hope is not a passive hope. While we wait for it patiently. This hope is active. It is active because if you truly have this hope. You truly do have full confidence in these promises. It will result in bold, relentless living for God. You are so sure of the hope that awaits. You are so sure of the promises of God that your life becomes kingdom oriented. You're no longer living for this life, but you're living for the kingdom. You can live boldly and sacrificially, knowing with confidence what is waiting for you. It is those who are unsure of what is to come that live timidly, that live for this life, that live maybe one foot In this world and one foot in the kingdom. uh, Christian, do you live a hopeful life? Do you live a hopeful life? Do you live a life that is so sure of the promises of God that you pour yourself out for his kingdom and his glory? Can you joyfully sacrifice your life knowing that the things that are unseen already belong to you? Does your life reflect a hopeful life in Christ? Or does it reflect a life that sets its hope in the world? Live a hopeful life unto Him, knowing what you have in Christ. lastly, the last groan we see is that the Spirit groans, verses 26 through 27. We only have one point in this section, and it's this. The Spirit bears our burdens in prayer. The Spirit bears our burdens in prayer. Verses 26 and 27. Likewise, we've been saying, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says likewise, or in the same way. It refers to what we have already been talking about. Just as creation groans, just as believers groan, so too does the Holy Spirit groan. Now, How does the Holy Spirit groan? What does that mean? What does that look like for the Holy Spirit to groan? I believe the point and the image Paul is using here is that the spirit groans with you, believer, with you. That as a spirit indwells inside you, as he's been saying this whole time, he groans with you and for you. Where am I getting that? Paul says that the spirit helps us in our weakness. And the word here for help And the Greek text is really an incredible word. I'm not going to break it out completely. But the English just does not do it justice just by saying help. It's actually a very, very long word in the Greek. And they put three Greek words together into one word. And all together it means to come alongside another, to take part of a heavy load and help him bear it. That is how the Spirit helps believers. That is how the Spirit groans for us. That the Spirit comes alongside the believer and bears their heavy load. He helps us in our weakness. And one way in which He helps us in our weakness that Paul points out here is in our prayers. Paul even says, we don't know what we ought to pray for you ever felt that Have you ever felt that i don't know what to pray for you ever been at a place in your life when, when it feels like that, you, that you're at a crossroads and you don't even know what to pray for you don't even know what to say you're at a loss you know you need to pray but, but you don't even know what what it is you should be praying for notice it's, it's not how we ought to pray he says but it's what we ought to pray for Spirit helps us. In our limited and finite minds, we, we often don't even know what to ask God. What is God's will? Am I praying within His will? What if I pray outside of His will? Is that even possible? What about the things that I'm unaware of? What if I miss those? Oftentimes, there are a lot of spiritual needs that exist in our life that we should be praying for but we don't even know they exist how can we pray for the things that, that we're not even aware of how can we possibly know all of God's intended purposes all of our needs when we're, we're simply finite little humans we can't and that can be burdensome it's a heavy burden to not know what to pray for But he says, the spirit is our burden bearer, that he groans with us and struggles with us and bears that load that the spirit cries for our deliverance on our behalf. This is what it means for him to intercede for us. That even when we don't know what to pray for, even when we're at a loss of words, even when our minds do not understand everything that's going on, the Spirit bears our burdens and cries out for us and pleads to the Father and intercedes on our behalf. We don't need to be paralyzed with worry on whether or not we're going to say the right things or pray for everything that's needed and just make sure that, that everything's covered. But the Spirit bears our burdens and helps us in our weakness and intercedes on our behalf. You see the ministry of the Holy Spirit? He is the perfect intercessor for us. As God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, says in verse 27, that they are in perfect communion with another. And while they're different persons, they are one being, one God. God the Father knows the mind of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for the believer according to the will of God, he says, verse 27. There is comfort in knowing that the Holy Spirit is with us in our prayers. Now, does that mean that we have no responsibility to pray since the Spirit will intercede and help anyways? Uh, Spirit's got it. I'm not going to pray then. Thank you, Spirit. No. Paul says... The Spirit helps us, not the Spirit prays for us. There's a difference. This does not remove the responsibility or eliminates the need for Christians to pray regularly and boldly. Christian, we must be people of prayer. It's a characteristic of every Christian. It is commanded by God and it is necessary for our spiritual health and maturity and growth. Go through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus spoke many times of the need for him to pray. And if Christ found great necessity and importance to pray in his life, so must we, Christian. And not only should we pray regularly, but we ought to pray big. And we ought to pray boldly. Don't pray small, Christian. Don't be afraid that if you pray too big, God may say no. While it's good to pray within God's will, we must not be afraid to pray so big that we're praying outside of God's will. Like, oh, I don't want to say that because God will never say yes to that. So I don't don't want to pray that big. No, it says in verse 27, the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So pray big and the spirit will intercede to pray according to the will of God. If God says no, that doesn't mean that it was a bad or a wrong prayer. Sometimes we feel like, oh, if he said yes, I prayed it good. If I said no, I shouldn't have prayed that. Don't think like that. Jesus prayed that God would take the cup of the crucifixion away from him, if that be his will. And God said no. God said that's not my will. Just because God says no doesn't mean that you shouldn't have prayed for it. Pray big. Pray with a worshipful heart. Pray for God's will to be done and pray that he'd be glorified. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is in you and he bears your burdens and he intercedes for you. The Spirit groans with the believer as he bears our burden in prayer. As we close for tonight. We've seen the groanings, we've seen the cry for deliverance from creation, from believers, and from the Holy Spirit. These groanings ought to point us to one place, that is the throne room of God. While these groanings are, are real, it does not end with a groan, but it ends in hope. Creation groans, but creation will be set free and will be restored. Believers groan, but believers will receive the fullness of God's promises. The Spirit groans as He bears the burdens of the believers, and He helps them in their weaknesses. So you see, while there is groaning, there is hope in the Lord. And so with that in mind, I want to quickly just leave the Christian with a word of hope and some challenges to think upon as we leave tonight, and then we'll be done. Just three. The first is this. Don't be surprised when things go wrong in this life. Don't be surprised when things go wrong in this life. We live in a sinful, fallen world. People will fail you, you will fail people, plans will fall through, the sin of others will affect you, you will experience pain and frustration. Do not be surprised. And do not measure the success of your life based on what goes according to plan or how comfortable or how easy your life is. But let the measure of your life be that of your love for God and the glory that you give him. Secondly, don't place your hope in what man can offer. Don't place your hope in what man can offer. Man is fallen. Man does not have the solution to our greatest problem, which is sin. Men and women and family and friends and politicians will claim to have what you need, will claim that they can offer the solution to your greatest problems in life. Do not place your hope in man. Place your hope in Christ. Place your hope in the sure promises of God. And lastly, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Where else can we look? Where else can we go, Lord? Who else is worthy of of, of your trust? Like, who would you put your trust in other than Christ? Who else will we place our hope in? Look to Christ, who is our hope, and trust Him completely in everything. Don't let your eyes wander from Christ. But fixate your eyes on Him. We groan. We cry for deliverance. The good news is there is deliverance through the blood of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the love and the mercy and the grace of God the Father. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that there is hope in you. God, as we groan, as we long to be with you, Lord, I pray that we would fixate our eyes and our hope on you our Savior, our Lord, our Maker. Lord, I pray that you would give us great boldness to live for you here because of the promises and the hope that we have in you. Help us, God, even this time as we discuss these things for your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.